0: Welcome to Matthew Felix, The Radio Episodes, Travelers on Travel. I'm Matthew Felix, author of the books, With Open Arms, Short Stories of Misadventures in Morocco, and The New Porcelain Travels. In February of 2018, what is now my Matthew Felix on Air video podcast began as an internet radio program in downtown San Francisco. The Radio Episodes, Travelers on Travel podcast, feature segments from that radio show in which I talk travel with travel writers, journalists, photographers, and filmmakers. I hope you like the show. And don't forget to check out the current video podcast incarnation, Matthew Felix On Air, available here as well as on Facebook and YouTube. Thanks for listening and talk soon. Hey, check out my new book, Porcelain Travels. Humor, Horror, and Revelation, In, On, and Around, Toilets, Tubs, and Showers an Amazon number one new release in four categories, including Travel Humor, and winner of Gold for Humor in the 2018 Solas Awards for travel writing. You can also check out Porcelain Travel's companion podcast of the same name, which comprises readings from eight stories, including two recorded before a live audience. Porcelain Travel's The Book is available in paperback and ebook on Amazon and other online retailers. James Michael Dorsey is an explorer, award-winning author, photographer, and lecturer who has traveled not only to Africa, but extensively in 48 countries. He is a fellow of the Explorers Club and a former director of the Adventurers Club, as well as a former contributing editor at Transitions Abroad and a travel consultant to Brown and Hudson of London. James' main pursuit of the last 15 years has been visiting remote cultures, mostly in Africa and Asia. In addition to his new book, Baboons for Lunch, James has published another, Vanishing Tales from Ancient Trails, Memoirs from Far Off the Beaten, Tra- uh, Beaten Path, and his work has been featured in Lonely Planet, Traveler's Tales, and Chicken Soup for the Soul anthologies. James is also a frequent contributor to the Los Angeles Times, the Christian Science Monitor, and United Airlines Hemispheres Magazine. Welcome, James. James.
1: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Nice to have you, and happy belated birthday. Thank you, too. James just celeva- celebrated another year here on this earth on Friday, April 13th. So Friday the 13th, were you at all nervous about having your birthday fall on such a tricky day?
1: Didn't th- really think about it. I was okay. actually born on a Friday the 13th, Oh, you were. so I'm still hanging in there.
0: Ah, interesting. Okay. All right. So it, really, it was even more full circle than, than I would have uh, suspected. So... Uh, you're also, in addition to celebrating your birthday, you were very busy this week uh, promoting Baboons for Lunch. You were at Book Passage in Corte Madera on Wednesday. On Thursday, you were at Books Inc in San Francisco, and I'm just, I'm a little concerned. Are you sure you've got a voice left for today's show?
1: I'll croak through it if I have to.
0: Croak through it. All right, we've got, we've got water here. Uh, hopefully that'll, that'll help. So a couple questions about your bio. I just read your bio and I was curious about your title of travel consultant to Brown and Hudson of London. What does that entail?
1: They call themselves a truly bespoke travel service. They uh. cater to extremely high net worth individuals. They put together unique, one of a kind travel packages. Okay. And they contacted me because what I do is so unusual in the travel world. So I'm kind of like on call if, if some... Uh, mega millionaire wants to go on a a, a elephant safari in africa and they want somebody that can hold their hand they'll do it all right yeah why not that's what i am there yeah okay cool interesting that sounds like a good gig an on-call guide as it were
0: right right so someone could call you tonight and say hey we're leaving tomorrow for africa Uh, We need you to go with us.
1: It hasn't happened, but it could. It could.
0: Yeah. All right. Like I said, that sounds like a good gig. Uh, The other thing I noticed that wasn't specifically called out in your bio is that you're, are you a marine biologist? You're some sort of, but there's some sort of whale related. What did you? I I
1: am a certified naturalist through the American Cetacean Society and I I work with whales seasonally.
0: Okay. All right. That sounds like another really interesting gig, specifically down in Baja, Mexico. You Mm -hmm. usually do that. Yeah. Okay. So the last thing that I want to call out specific to your bio was on your website, you say, quote, James is a throwback to a bygone era of exploration. What does that mean?
1: It means I am not adverse to sleeping in the dirt in a mud hut. I don't need a flush toilet. I like to embed myself in a tribal culture and live as they do. And, uh, because mostly I'm trying to visit people who have no written languages and give them a little voice before they disappear off the planet because that's happening very quickly. Yes. So uh, that, that, that's basically what it is. I'm a down-in-the-dirt explorer. So... uh
0: so how is an explorer, and I guess you kind of just touched on this, but I was going to ask, how is an explorer different from a traveler or a tourist? And it sounds like your main distinction there would be that you're willing to go to lengths and you're willing to go to places that the quote-unquote average traveler or tourist would not be willing to, to yeah, go
1: to. Yeah, and, and uh, there's nothing wrong with tourist travel. I've, I've been called out on this. Uh, to me, a tourist goes somewhere that's as a respite from their daily life and Mm -hmm. a traveler goes somewhere to experience and learn something new.
0: Yes. To me, uh, philosophically, I'm going to go one more step here and volunteer my own perspective on this and see what you think. Seems to me like tourism, and I'll probably take some slack for this too, but it seems as if tourism is kind of largely about consumption
1: as well, right? I mean,
0: versus really going, really trying to have an exchange. Tourism often, not always, But often seems to be about, okay, I got this list of 10 things I'm going to do and I'm just going to plow in there and see and do it all and then come back and not necessarily remember much of what I just did because I tried to kind of intake so much. Is that overly cynical? or?
1: (laughs) No, no. I think that's what a lot of people do. They they have a two-week vacation every year. We're the only industrial nation in the world that Mm. only gives their people two weeks off. Indeed. And they try to cram in as much as they can. And by the time you get home, you've forgotten half of what you've seen.
0: And you're more tired than before you left.
1: Right. So, uh, yeah, I just prefer doing it a little differently. That's all. And if that's the only way you can, more power to you.
0: Well, that's the other thing. I mean, the reality is, of course, you brought up a really good point. Some people just have two weeks and they want to try to make the most of them. So some of that is certainly coming from, from that limited time. Uh, but let's take, let's go further back here with regards to, uh, your past. And, uh, as a young child, I preferred, this is a quote, watching travel programs on television to playing with my friends. So when and why did you go from watching the travel programs to actually traveling?
1: It was many years later. I didn't have the money until I was almost 30 years old. You know, mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. worked a lot of different jobs, and I saved because I knew I wanted to get out there and do that. And uh, then I got, this, I got a steady job that gave me lots of time off, and uh, boom, I've been going ever since.
0: Where did you go first? Where was the place that was first calling? Uh,
1: 1977, there was a fellow called Freddie Laker who started an airline called SkyTrain. Most uh-huh. people don't remember. It was a $99 airfare one way from Los Angeles to London.
0: $99. $99. Nice. My wife
1: and I were one of the first to buy those tickets. Uh, we hit London, and we spent the next three months living in a two-man tent, wandering all over Western Europe.
0: That's a great start.
1: That was a wonderful start.
0: And uh, if you find any more $99 tickets, let me know. Although I will say, last year this time, I went to Stockholm, round trip, taxes, fees, everything for $392 on Norwegian Air.
1: I've heard about them. They sound to be terrific.
0: Yes. So there are still deals, not quite $99. And I haven't seen the $400 ticket since then. So I might, it's always a question of timing, I guess. But speaking of planes, quote, I'm going to quote you a lot because you've got a lot of good quotes, both on your website and in baboons for lunch. But this quote I really liked. Travel does not always begin with the boarding of an airplane. But rather, at the moment, one opens the mind to new possibilities. Yes, I Tell us about that. that. Thoughts on that?
1: You, you, you have to be open. You have to be ready for anything if you're going to travel. Because it, you're leaving your comfort zone. And to me, that's what it's all about. If I'm just going to be comfortable, I might as well stay home. I'm not going to learn anything. I'm not going to experience anything new. That's so why I, 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 I don't understand people who will go to a foreign country and look for a McDonald's for their first meal. Right, <laughs> or their last, yeah. or any
0: meal, actually.
1: Yeah, I just, uh, to me, that's that doesn't work.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, I mean, I think you bring up a really good point, though. It's there. There's that aspect of it, but also just this idea of so much of it's related to the imagination, right? And so much is related to the inspiration that we get. So it's not even just doing it. It's the thinking ahead. It's the imagining the possibilities. It's I always try not to have expectations, but I think that's oftentimes sort of inevitable, and that's actually kind of part of the fun too—is imagining what you're going to see and what you're going to do, and um, getting outside of your comfort zone as well.
1: And I I try to be open to everything because to me, whatever I see is going to go into a story at some point. Yes, uh, and you got to be ready for whatever comes at you. I I take photos of. The most minute things because sometime later they're going to trigger a memory that I can use in a story. Mm-hmm. It might just be one line, it might be a paragraph, but I try to take in everything around me. Yes. Because I can use it later on.
0: Right. So, again, on a philosophical note here, before we get into some of the specifics, why does travel
1: matter? Why does it matter? Yes. You know, we, we see and hear all these terrible things on the news every night, uh, people trying to kill us, people want to bomb us, everybody wants to fight wars. It, it's easy to hate somebody from a 30-second soundbite on a newscast, but if you go there and you look them in the eye and you shake their hand, it's a little different story. Uh, it, it, it's not as easy to form an opinion on someone when you're actually there meeting them. You know, you're you getting it firsthand rather than having it fed to you by someone who may or may not be biased in the first place.
0: Right right and then you've got the uh the mark twain quote i saw at least once or twice that that i love and i'd heard before but i, I love this quote do you know it off the top of your head
1: uh travel is uh, harmful to bigotry and i, I don't remember yes. the exact quote travel but, is uh, fatal
0: to prejudice bigotry and narrow-mindedness and many of our people need it sorely on these accounts
1: i agree 100 yeah. percent and and twain is by far my favorite author
0: he is certainly a fantastic author. No one's going to fault him for that or, or deny that. So speaking of writing then, when and why did you actually, you know, you said now that when you travel, you're paying attention to everything because you know that you're going to be writing about it probably at some point. So, But when you first started traveling, that wasn't necessarily the case.
1: No, it never occurred to me to write about it. I was right. just a tourist.
0: So when did that transition and why did that transition take place?
1: I think it happened on a, a long-range kayak trip. On my 25th wedding anniversary, we wanted to do something different. Uh, We had never kayaked before, and my wife and I found ourselves in the Johnstone Strait off of Vancouver Island in the open ocean, and within within an hour, we had a pot of orcas all around us. Oh, nice. Nice. And I was so uh, worked up about that, I came home and I wrote a story, and I sold Mm -hmm. it to uh, California Wild Magazine, which was published by the Academy of Sciences here in San Francisco. That was my first big publication.
0: And that was your first story?
1: That was my first published story, yeah, yeah. and I thought, well, god, maybe uh, maybe I can actually make money to pay for trips by doing this stuff. So, and yeah.
0: that launched that whole endeavor. But you make a distinction between being a story you say you're a storyteller first and a writer second. Yeah. What's that mean?
1: I never went to college. I barely got through high school English. I can't conjugate a sentence. Mm-hmm. I uh I need heavy editing. <laughs> yeah. But I do have great stories. And so I write them and I rewrite them and I rework them. And uh, gradually over the years, I taught myself to write by reading great writers. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's the difference. I mean, I'm still a storyteller. I have no technical training. I've never had a writing class. Right, right. And yet I've. Got three books, so uh,
0: you seem to have figured
1: it out. I've figured it out, somewhat at least.
0: Yeah, and like you said, you know, you get you get uh, some help from some editors and some beta readers, and uh, but yeah, it it all comes together clearly. Once again, baboons for lunch. Another reason that you uh, talk about uh, writing versus just traveling is that you feel, and you mentioned this a little sec- uh, a little second ago. You mentioned this a second ago, a little bit ago, a second ago, which is you like to go to places that are remote you like to give voices to these uh, communities and peoples who are don't necessarily have a voice otherwise. And you've talked about how you feel an obligation to do that when you go to these places. That you, It's not just you want to write a story because it's entertaining and informative, but you actually feel an obligation. So where does that come from?
1: Well, these people are kind enough to take me into their lives. I, I feel like I ought to give something back to them. Uh, if I give them gifts, that disrupts the balance of a village uh, that 's happened many times, so i don 't do that anymore but uh, I, I, there 's this great anthropologist named Wade Davis, who has kind of been a remote mentor, I consider him, and uh, he he stated fifty years ago there were thirty five thousand languages on this planet today there 's somewhere between five and six being spoken, and of those fewer than a thousand are being taught in schools. Mm. Many of these societies have no written language whatsoever. So when I go there, I, I want to tell the world these people existed because when the last speaker dies, an entire culture goes down with it. Right. And there's an old saying in Africa that I love and I use it all the time that when last speaker of a language dies, it's like a library burning.
0: Mm, mm-hmm.
1: Yep, yep. Because they're oral societies and that everything is in their head and it's the storytellers, the griots in Africa that that keep these... these uh, civilization's going. Yep. So I'm trying to do one very little small part of that. It just fascinates me. Yep. So you
0: said you can't give gifts to a lot of these places because it disrupts these, if you're really far out there, if you're in with these remote peoples, remote cultures, but we can't go someplace without having some sort of impact. Right. And one of the stories in one of the stories, I I liked this example of how we have an impact, whether we intend to have, have one or not. This is from your story in baboons for lunch, my Maasai night, and a friend that you've made, I think in L.A., who's uh-huh. actually from this tribe. Yes. So you were invited there, and he sets up a tent for you. And so again, this isn't even you're not you're not even responsible for this. The the Maasai member has chosen to put up a tent, and here's what happens. He says, quote, or you say, you write, quote. No sooner were Irene, your wife, and I in the tent—I assume that's your wife—in uh, uh-huh. <laughs> the tent than most of the village surrounded us. I hope it's your wife; otherwise, I just got you in trouble. Yeah.
1: No, it's my wife. <laughs> okay, good. And hopefully, she's listening right now.
0: Hopefully, she's listening. <laughs> uh, no sooner were Irene and I in the tent than most of the village surrounded us, pulling the zipper up and de- pulling the zipper up and down while running their hands over the strange new sensation of nylon. Most of them had never seen a tent before. And they called it a fast hut, which makes sense. A full moon was rising over the tree line, turning the silhouettes of our curious visitors into a shadow puppet show crawling on our tent walls. Surreal patterns glided over the nylon as tiny figures fingers poked and prodded and old hands ran up and down. After a few minutes, we became concerned about being such an oddity, having no wish to offend our guests by disrupting village life. And that is just what we were doing. At first, we stayed inside hoping to minimize our impact, but this only fed the people's curiosity, and rather than winding down, more and more people were arriving. And it turns out, I think people were ended up coming from other villages and things, right? The whole valley showed up that night. They came
1: from miles, and and they wanted to see us and and this strange thing we were sleeping in.
0: Right. So that is obviously not some sort of detrimental impact, and like I said, it was actually a Maasai member of that village who set up the tent, but... It does bring up this issue that you raised a second ago about when we're going to these places, how much of a concern and how much consideration do you give to minimizing your impact? And how does that come in when you're, when you're planning a trip? And how do you kind of, it seems tricky.
1: Yeah, it's a fine line you have to walk because your very presence is, is having an effect on the area. Um. I just try to be a fly on the wall and observe as much as I can, but at the same time, I'm a curiosity, and and they want to know as much about me as I do of them. Right. So I just try and keep a very low key, and I do what the people do. I try to blend in. Yep. Um, Does the traveler ever have a
0: responsibility not to go somewhere?
1: Oh, that would depend on the individual situation. I mean, personally, there's nowhere I wouldn't go. Yep. uh, But you know, to each his own. I know a lot of people are afraid of war zones. To me, I would love to go and see that. Yeah, you know? yeah.
0: And I'm even thinking, so we have the the situations that we've just been describing here, the more remote, more real explorer sort of destinations, if you will. I'm even just personally thinking about Barcelona that's now just completely overrun. You can't even walk around their historic quarters without, you know, and, and the, the communities who have lived in these historic neighborhoods are even getting displaced by services such as airbnb which i love and have used a lot but barcelona or venice where the number of cruise ships bringing people in and so i really started wondering you know should i as a responsible trying to be a responsible traveler start avoiding even places that aren't necessarily i'm not necessarily worried about my impact on this remote tribe but even on western you know developed destinations because it seems as if the traveling and tourism has gotten in some places kind of kind of out of uh
1: i think it's totally out of control these giant ships are are floating cities right and uh i mean i have a lot of friends who love to cruise but to me i I don't i don't understand it because why why leave home if i'm gonna have everything i have right there right to spend most of my time in a modern ship and go ashore for a few hours every day that doesn't make much sense to me
0: right right So and they're seeing a lot of backlash in those places and hopefully they'll find some sort of middle ground where people can show up and communities can still continue to 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 function and people in Venice won't be driven out of Venice. All right. Uh, Let's talk about Baboons for Lunch specifically. I mean, I've obviously just read a quote from it, but let's talk about the book itself. A quick uh, summary that was on your website, quote, visit a remote volcano in Ethiopia, cross the Sahara Desert of Mali with Berber nomads explore a drug lord's hideout in the mountains of Laos and get set up as bait during a baboon hunt in Tanzania. Tanzania. Is that how you say that? Tanzania. Tanzania, Tanzania, right. You called the book Baboons for Lunch, but it just as easily could have been called Baboon Bait. So... Can you just give us kind of the cliff notes version of that story? Because the readers or my listeners need to read the whole story, but that's that's a great, uh, a great one to kind of start with because that was hilarious and horrifying. It was a good combination of both.
1: Well, I had to pass several tests to get into the village. I had to make fire using friction. I had to fire a bow and arrow, and I wasn't prepared at the moment, but they got me very stoned on local ganja oh, before nice. they would have anything to do with me, and uh-huh. I found out that there's... <laughs> All the time I was there, those guys smoked enough to kill Willie Nelson. Really? Well, that's Around a lot. The clock. That's and, a lot. And they wanted me to go on a baboon hunt with them. I went along to record, not to kill anything. Right. I lost them in the bushes. I couldn't keep up with them. But every now and then, one would pop up and give me hand signals directing me where to go. So I figured, okay, they're guiding me to where they're hunting. Right. And all of a sudden, there's this big commotion in front of me, and this enraged baboon breaks cover. And... I mean, a baboon can kill a man easily. Oh, yeah, sure. And before I even have time to react, he's got two arrows in him, and he's on the ground twitching because these guys use a neurotoxin on their arrowheads. And I look on either side of me, and here's one of these guys. They're the Hadzabe people, and Uh they've already got another arrow knocked in their bows ready. It occurred to me at that point that they had me covered the whole time, but not only that, they were directing me to where they knew this baboon was hiding and that he would attack me and come out and they could kill it. They were literally using you as bait. They were using me as bait. Right.
0: <laughs> Which is just clap. I mean, yes. I mean talk, that is truly a unique story. I think so. You know, we like to talk about, oh, this. I had this crazy thing happen to me. I think you might be the only person... <laughs> the only Westerner that's been used as baboon bait. It'd be really curious if anyone else pops up claiming to have been used as bait, but that's, that's well, pretty they, extraordinary. If they
1: do, I was at least the first.
0: You were the first. You but were definitely you know, the first. That, that
1: story actually ended several months later when I read an article. I, th- I think it was in Scientific American. I may be wrong, but Stanford University published a study a few years ago in which they claimed that this particular tribe of hunter-gatherers, the Hadzabe people, were one of three distinct genetic groups from which all of mankind is descended. Yes. Now, I have not researched this further. It may or may not be true. I'm not stating it as dogma. But if it's true, then my own ancestors took me on a hunt and used me as bait. That's, I love
0: that. I love that. Okay. Let's move on to another story that I loved. Uh, and I'm going to give you an abbreviated title because if I say the whole title, it's going to spoil the punchline. And I want you, do you know, can you already tell which one I'm, I'm going not for? not sure. All right. You laughed. I thought maybe that may you might know. Okay. So one of my other favorite stories was the abbreviated title is Monks on the Mountain. Okay. So can you give us again the the short, concise version of that one?
1: Well, it was in Burma, and there is this towering basalt uh, tower left from an ancient eruption with this beautiful temple on the summit. 777 stairs to get there. I mean, a couple hours of climbing. Thousands and thousands of feral monkeys along the way. Poop everywhere. You're walking through it. You have to go barefoot because you can't wear shoes in a temple. Oh, so, by the time I got there, my feet looked like they were cased in cement. And uh, I was being swarmed by these monkeys, and the idiot behind me had dumped a bag of hard candy out so he could photograph them fighting over it, and they stripped him of his camera and everything he owned. And I got up to the summit, finally, and I was besieged by monks with selfies. They wanted to take photos. Okay, but wait. You skipped the part that I, I'm going to gesture Okay, well, yeah, I got, I got hit by a ball of monkey poop, and I thought it was uh, uh, one of the cleaning women because right. I wouldn't tip her. Yeah. And it turns out it was this one big monkey who was like the leader of the pack, and he was making balls of feces, like a pitcher rubbing up a ball, and he was throwing them at me. All right. That is, I mean, okay, quote, he was
0: also, this is when I saw the first monkey, he was big and mean. He was also holding a fistful of feces that he rolled around in his hands like a pitcher rubbing up on a new ball, rubbing up a new ball. And just as he let fly in my direction, I noticed eight or nine hundred of his compatriots had surrounded me. Yeah.
1: So <laughs> they were everywhere. Yeah. And they're considered sacred, so you're not supposed to mess with them. So, yeah, and uh Anyway, I went through all this up at the top. I spent hours getting photographed with monks. I And uh, this, this gorgeous woman walked in and distracted all the monks. So I got out of there because I wanted to see the temple and not just have my picture taken. And I decided on the way down I was going to make my own feces ball. And if that monkey was there, I was going to let him have his own stuff. <laughs> right. And it occurred to me that I had gone there for a little uh, enlightenment and I was about to throw uh, uh, an object at a monkey. So I had to really rethink the whole situation. And not just any object. Yeah. It, it sort of defeated the reason I went there in the first place. You
0: were falling victim to that tendency of becoming your enemy. There you go. That yeah. was it. That yeah. was it. Well, I'm glad you didn't throw shit at a monkey because that just, particularly in a sacred place. and But it turns out. That's not that you have a kind of a history with monkeys and you, you challenged another monkey in uh, where was that one in uh, Mekong?
1: Uh, well, that was a drinking contest. Yeah. yeah. So how did that come about? Well, they have this stuff all over Southeast Asia called Cobra Whiskey, where they actually make moonshine and they put venomous creatures into the bottles and they sell it to tourists. And I went and found this moonshiner deep in the jungle and I spent an afternoon helping him stuff dead snakes in bottles of his moonshine. And he had a pet monkey, and he kept giving him thimbles full of his own whiskey. Yeah. This monkey was just down in these things like crazy. And uh, eventually, well, the guy was also giving me moonshine all day long, to, so we were both kind of drinking a lot. Sure. And I finally decided to see how much this monkey could do, and uh, <laughs> we started doing shot per shot, which I don't condone. I mean, I'm not telling people you should I was going to
0: a- say, with all due respect, challenging a monkey to a drinking contest... Sounds
1: I, a little imprudent. You're right. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm no saint. And <laughs> in in my defense, I think he started it. Oh, he started it. Well, and, that's different. I didn't I, realize he I started it. I just wanted it. to see how many he would do. And eventually, like I said in the book, he, he stopped and he looked at me and he kind of fell in slow motion like a Sam Peckinpah <laughs> Western until he bounced on the ground. Yeah. And uh, by that time, I was so drunk, I needed help to get back on the boat to to leave but you won the point is you won because he <laughs> collapsed
0: you didn't you almost collapsed but if you did collect because actually i think you said you went and took a nap before the boat came if that, i recall yeah,
1: that, that's just because i had so much more body weight i could absorb more I right and he probably for his size out the hell out of me
0: well that's very generous of you that's well let's call it a draw <laughs> and i want a rematch i want a rematch let's go back and we're gonna we're gonna have a rematch. Okay, well, not all of the stories. Uh, thanks for sharing those because I love those three stories in particular. But not all the stories in the book are funny. So I just want to make sure that I give a an a an accurate and sort of full representation of kind of um, how the book is set up. So you've got six parts. You've got humorous stories, which we just touched on, obviously. Discoveries and revelations, adrenaline, emotional journeys, uh, personal stories, and personal essays. And so a couple of the I mean, one of the things that... One of the uh, more... Let's see, what section would this have been in? So this was probably discoveries and revelations uh, from the ashes. You are with a monk, and he's holding a... Um, he's holding, like, a cup. But it turns out it's not just a cup. It's, it's
1: the skull of his brother who was killed by the Khmer Rouge. Right. And so, it was his... Uh, his rice bowl now as a rice bowl. That's right. That's because right. Cause it's his re, uh, reminder of the impermanence of life. He was a Buddhist, a right. Theravada Buddhist.
0: Yeah. And, uh, he says why, why? And he t- he ends up telling you his entire story and what was kind of his motivation for doing
1: that? He was one of the few survivors of, of Theravada Buddhism after the Khmer Rouge. Uh, there were maybe they believe 300 monks left alive from the time the Khmer Rouge moved into Cambodia until they finally left they destroyed most of the monasteries they killed most of the monks by torturing them they killed they raped nuns it was horrible and he was one of the survivors and he was an elder and he'd survived by becoming a jungle doctor and uh, when he finally came back into the city he he became a revered elder and uh, they sent monks from Vietnam to train under him in an attempt to bring back Theravada Buddhism, which is the main sect in that part of the world. And when I left, he had quite a few followers, and he was a very revered man. I'm sure he's dead by now, but uh, he was just an amazing person.
0: Yeah, yeah. And he said that he wanted to tell you the story because, or he told you, quote, Tell this story once so it might never be told a second time.
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's a George Santayana: and if we don't learn from the past, we'll repeat it.
0: Right, so let's try to learn, particularly from those those atrocities uh another intense story that was also another beautiful story if you could just give us uh an an overview of this one this one just appeared in the last edition the current edition of online travel magazine hidden compass and we talked about this in my second or third episode we actually talked about this article and you uh on that episode but this is a stone for henry lehman lehman lehman
1: Lehman. lehman yeah so what's can you give us the uh the overview of that one I was a letter carrier way back when, and he was one of my customers. He was approaching 90 years old, and he was an Auschwitz survivor. His wife was gone. He had no friends left. He invited me in for coffee one day. He needed somebody to talk to, and that turned into weeks of conversation um, in which he told me his story of, of Auschwitz. And so many years later, my wife and I were traveling through Eastern Europe, and I made a point of going there. And... Uh, One of of the hardest things I've ever done in my life was to walk into the actual gas chamber at Auschwitz. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you look up at this hole in the ceiling where they would drop in the Cyclone B pellets, and then you walk next door to the crematorium. And that's where he worked. His job was taking bodies out of the crematorium and stacking them. Right. And uh, he told me this whole story.
0: And it would have been intense enough just going. But knowing that your friend who had just shared with you for the first time ever these in, you know intensely personal stories knowing that he was in that room. I mean I can't imagine that. It just must have been well, so. Well,
1: I wrote the story with him at my side. His, right. his spirit That's came right. back and that. took me yep. through. And when I balked at going into certain places, he pushed me. And I really felt that while I was there. I felt like he was there pulling me along saying, you have to go see this and you have to tell this. And I know it's been told, but it has to keep being told because there are people out there saying it never happened and that's just such Right, nonsense. right, 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 right. So I told it through his eyes. And the, and the reason I titled it a stone is because it's the old Jewish tradition of placing a stone upon a grave. I didn't have a grave for him, so I picked up a stone inside Auschwitz. I carried it outside the wire and I set it down there in his honor.
0: Beautiful. So that is a nice segue. You said, you know, that you felt as if his pres- you could feel his presence while you were there and felt that he was he was with you on that journey. So let's talk about spirituality a little bit, because that is one of the themes that I noticed is is sort of recurring, not sort of, is recurring in, in your work and in these stories in Baboons for Lunch. So I'm going to throw out a couple of examples, and specifically the idea of not just spirituality in general, but more specifically this idea of other cultures and people's accessing realities different from your or from our own. And I found this interesting each time this kind of came up. So, for example, in From the Ashes, Pan occupies a separate reality, a spiritual place I can only hope to reach one day. From my Maasai night, I realized that while in Africa, he occupied a separate reality than I did. And I marveled at how he transitioned from one to the other with ease. And that's with regards to your friend who lived in L.A. and there as uh, in both places. And then another uh, quote along those lines that I really liked and that illustrates this point is from Conversations with a Caveman. For them, there was no division between the spiritual and material worlds, and suddenly there I was, a creature from a different planet. So those are just some examples of where you comment that members of other cultures you're visiting were accessing realities that you yourself couldn't access or perhaps comprehend. But... um, I'm guessing that there have been times when your interactions with those other cultures changed or expanded your own personal. So you're saying sometimes you're saying they're going someplace else. That's kind of off limits to me because I'm not part of that culture. I don't understand how they're getting there. But just being around that in certain situations, I'm guessing that you have, in fact, been transported, have, in fact, accessed realities that that are foreign to your day to day and that have expanded your understanding and appreciation and experience of, I guess it's really expanded your experience of reality. Any thoughts on that?
1: That's always my ultimate goal when I go to these places. And, and there's a story called Jordan's Bull in which I describe one of those days when I felt I had been transported someplace else uh, because of this mute little boy who may or may not have been a holy man and uh, we will never know if he was or not. But uh, while I was with him, we had the most incredible experience. And and an entire village uh, came out to greet us and and sang and followed us. And I noticed a change in colors. I noticed a change in temperature. Everything about me was different while I was with him. And at the end of the day, when he left, everything suddenly went back to normal. And I'm asking myself, what just happened here? I Mm -hmm. had experienced something I could not explain. I think I said it was something African and it could never be understood by a non-African, and that was good enough because I just wanted the experience as it was.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is that Mudu or is Mudu from a different story? No, I Mudu this was one.
1: Uh, the caveman I had the conversations with. Okay. He, this little boy was called Jordan. Yes, and yeah. I and I
0: loved that story, and that's actually the first time I saw you. We talked about this before the show. We didn't meet, but I saw you read that story at, at uh, the Litquake yes, event last yes. year. I loved that story. Um, I think it's a great story. So, but Mudu passed on to me a sense of complete merging with not only the spiritual, but the natural environment as well. In his presence, I reached a mental state I have rarely achieved on my own. So what was that compared to, we talked about Jordan the Bull. Tell us a little bit about that experience and how that...
1: There was something about him. He gave off an aura. He seemed like he was just from another place altogether and... and, uh he kept talking to me. He spoke a click language, a Khoisan click language, like the guys in The Gods Must Be Crazy. Right, right, right. The right. way they talk. these The Hadzabi are actually cousins of those people from uh, Namibia, the San. But I don't know. There was something about this guy. He was either a shaman or a, he was a holy man or something. And I just felt difference in his presence. I picked up on like a... a an aura, let's say, is the best I could describe it. Now, it's hard to put these feelings into words because they're they're not things we experience here in the West, right? And I don't even experience them in most places unless I'm really out in the middle of nowhere.
0: mm Hmm. 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 Interesting. Yeah, I'm. I'm having five different thought. Five different directions I could go with that because this this obviously I find really personally fascinating. Um, the other story along these lines is when you had the experience with the shaman in Breaking Bed in Kanas. And this was a different variation, though. So the first two experiences we just talked about were sort of, you're transported someplace else. It was African, or I guess both of those were in Africa, right? The caveman one was also in Africa? Yes, that was Tanzania. Tanzania. Um, But this one was different because you're with this shaman in... Kanas, China. China, yes. And you have... A different experience that's that's actually more related to
1: your past. So, kind of what happened there? Uh, well, first of all, I, I, Kanis is is uh, it's a very remote area. It, it, it's a point where Kazakhstan, Russia, Mongolia, and China all meet, and you can actually stand on a mountain on all four countries. Oh, can you? Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's where I was, and it was mostly uh, Mongol nomads up there, throat singers, Tuvens. Nice. And, uh, and and I met this woman who was supposed to be a shaman, and she took me into her home, and she made a meal for me, and I never got a sense that she had any special powers. It was just uh, one of those magical afternoons when, when you feel like you're part of a family, and people came from, she called her whole family in, and we ate uh, fermented goat's milk that she had made into a cheese so hard I was afraid I'd break my <laughs> teeth trying to eat it. Uh-huh. And, it uh, never the, goes bad probably. Right. No. And at the, at the same time, I've got this guy from the uh, communist party outside lurking in the bushes because he's following me everywhere I'm going. Uh, Making sure you're happens. up to no bad. Yeah. I mean, anytime you travel alone in China, you're going to have a, a watchdog on you and that's all there is to it. Yeah. And, uh, there was a very special day, although I, I went there thinking she had special powers and came away realizing I didn't think she had it all, and if she did, she didn't reveal them to me, but it was just one incredibly great day to to, to, to see how the local people lived. This was a, a log cabin that was built by Russian loggers at the turn of the 20th century, left behind. She'd been married to a Russian. She was a local Tuvan woman, and uh, she was like the village elder. Yep. But what about the uh, the Norman Rockwell flashback?
0: Do you remember that? So, quote: An old Norman Rockwell painting came to me in that moment. It was a mother bringing the Thanksgiving turkey Thanksgiving turkey to the table where her anxious family awaited her feast. The feast. Suddenly, I was a six year old boy again, watching my own mother approach. The image lasted only a second. And I quickly returned to the present. So that's I just found that interesting, and this is how I was trying to distinguish it from the previous ones where someone else is kind of taking you into their realities, Mm -hmm. so to speak. But with this woman, even though she didn't necessarily demonstrate externally whether she was actually a shaman or not, something happened where you went back into yourself and into your own past.
1: Yeah, it reminded me of my mother for a brief second. I forgot about that part of the book. Yeah, And there's another story in the book also where a dead whale uh, brings my mother back to me.
0: Tell us about that because yeah, I, um, cause that's actually where I found out that you had the involvement with the whales and the, uh, that that's something you do yearly. Yeah, I, I
1: was kayaking in a mangrove in southern Baja and I found a, a dead whale, a floater we call them. And part of my job as a naturalist there is to catalog these things. And I went over to this whale and realized I knew her from the markings on her. I'd seen her before. Really, and so she, you can
0: actually, the markings are distinctive enough that distinctive. year to year you yeah. can you yeah. can tell
1: who's who. Mm-hmm. Interesting, interesting. And when I got up to her, I realized she had a newborn calf, and I couldn't see it from where I was at first. So I started to back off in my kayak, and the whale followed me, the baby. And it came over, and it, it was trying to spoon my kayak. And be, I mean, it, like, it instantly glommed onto me because it had lost its mother and it didn't know what to do. A baby whale has no instinct. It's going to die without a, really? a gray whale will. Anyway. Really? And this was a gray whale. Yeah. So this whale is like rubbing on my boat, and I, don't, I can't do anything with it. I can't help it. And it's going to starve, and it's going to die a terrible death. So what I did is I paddled as hard as I could through the surf because I knew the whale would follow me. Mm-hmm. I took it out in the open ocean, and it was overwhelmed by the waves, and it drowned. Really? Because to me, that was the most merciful thing I could do to it. Sure, sure. And that triggered memories of my mother dying.
0: Right, right. So speaking of life and death, this is another theme that is recurrent, is this idea, on at least two occasions in your book, you talk about risking your life for adventure. And to live or die in the Danakil, Danakil? Danakil. Danakil, uh, you say, quote, it seems an inbred human flaw that our curiosity often results in our demise, and yet many of us return to possible danger like moths to a flame. Such questions butt up against the meaning of life itself, a pursuit so far that seems to elude mortal man. I have no death wish, but I prefer not... I prefer to meet it doing what I love rather than lying in a hospital bed one day wondering why I never chased the dream.
1: Yeah. So... um. I, I would rather die on an expedition than than being hooked up to a lot of tubes in a hospital, being right. waiting for the moment.
0: But how do you, as an explorer, because you, like you said, you don't have a death wish, but you do also at the same time you want to have these real adventures. And I've mm-hmm. talked with previous writers, previous travelers about, um, and this is a slight a slight tangent, but I think it's all under the same umbrella here. Of you know, oftentimes the good stories, something bad has to happen to have a good, to, in order for us to have a good story, right? A lot. Right. Oftentimes. So we do want to go places where we're outside of our comfort zone, where there might be some danger, but how do you, how do you kind of find the middle ground? Um, you know, because you did in this story that I just cited, Westerners were actually murdered not long after you were there. So the, 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 the danger that you were experiencing was very real. It wasn't, you weren't being dramatic. Like the danger of you losing your life in that situation was real. So how do you kind of assess that or decide whether you want to go to these kind of, put yourself in these kinds of situations.
1: I don't really assess. I, I go, (laughs) you just go.
0: Yeah. And I don't worry about it Yeah.
1: because I can be killed stepping off a curb as soon as I leave this radio show. Yep. I hope you're not. And, and people always say, how can you go to these places? They're so dangerous. Well, it's no more dangerous than living in a big city. I mean, come on. It's, that's all there is to it. Um, So I don't worry about it. Yeah. I would rather have that experience. And if it takes my life at some point, then I've lived the way I wanted to live.
0: Amen. I always say something similar, and I've said it at least once on this show already, but the only place I've ever been held up at gunpoint is five minutes from here. Yeah. You know, not in the the off the beaten track places that I've been. That's not to say I've never been in dangerous situations, but the only place I've actually had a gun to my side, I hope mom's not listening, uh, was, (laughs) was five minutes from here. And, uh, and yeah, I think, I think that's, that we just have to be careful, smart, wherever you are. That's right. Wherever you are.
1: People always tell me what's the most dangerous place you've ever been. And I told them Los Angeles cause I yeah. just moved from there.
0: Yeah. There you go. The tenderloin, San Francisco. Uh, okay. So I would like, we're kind of running out of time here and I want to make sure. So I talked about, uh, your most recent events this week and but I think you have some upcoming events down south is that correct
1: I'm flying down to Los Angeles on Tuesday I'm doing a book signing down there and uh, in Brentwood at diesel bookstore and then I'll be flying back up here and I've I've got a podcast down there with a gentleman named Eric trolls that will be on April 20th and uh, that's all that's scheduled for right now
0: well that sounds like more than enough given what you've had, given the week you've had this week, and that's coming up shortly, and I'm sure there will end up, you'll have plenty uh, of other things coming onto the calendar, I have no doubt. So uh, check out James if you're down south in Southern California. And uh, if you're not, you can, of course, check James out online at jamesdorsey.com. That's James, like you always spell James, but Dorsey is D-O-R-S-E-Y. Any other links or anything I need to throw out? Or is that, that no, seems like your no. main... Uh, uh,
1: you can find me on Facebook and Twitter and, and uh, LinkedIn also. I use a lot of social media and uh, Baboons for Lunch is available everywhere. Any bookseller.
0: Check it out. It's a great book. I can tell you from firsthand experience. James, thank you very much for being here. My pleasure. And uh, good luck with the book. Thank
1: you very much.